You're listening to Don't Waste Water. I would say that what we bring to the table is a solution that will lower the carbon footprint. Our solution has the lowest carbon footprint irrespective of the biosolids out there. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I think one of the reasons why we've been so successful is that we've been very focused on where our core competency lies. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Eric Fadness as my guest. There's a reason why we decided to go public about a year ago. We raised capital in order to invest more heavily in the, the DBO segment. Eric is the CEO of the Cambi Group. I think one of the, the largest bottlenecks we have is marketing or knowledge about our solution. So it's increasing that awareness is is important to, to ensure growth. Kembi is on a mission to turn sludge into resources. We'll explore how they do that in just a minute. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you've for sure already heard that there's no waste in wastewater. We've explained how the words sewage might be the equivalent to 320 nuclear power reactors, and we've regularly touched on how that wastewater is probably one of the best sources of water we have at hand in the new realm of water scarcity. Now, in the dirty world of wastewater, there's an even dirtier side to be found on the sludge line. Imagine, that's the waste's waste. How good or useful can it be? Well, first, that's also an amazing bioresource that you can turn into biogas, but also biosolids that can be valorized. And that's where Kembi's magic happens. With their thermal hydrolysis process, they can increase the biogas production by up to 50%, while halving the volume of those biosolids which means twice fewer trucks to deal with it. I let Eric explain to us in simple terms how, to quote him, his giant pressure cooker delivers that amazing result. And we'll get to discuss a bit deeper the business model and the strategy of a company that went through its IPO in 2021. Right before we start, let me remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help me up incredibly by sharing that content around you. Tell your friends, colleagues, or LinkedIn network what you found inspiring in what Eric explains today. And if you don't like what you hear, please reach out to me and tell me what I should be doing differently or better. Come on, do it, and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Antoine. Thank you for inviting me. I was revealing you my secrets in the chit chat just before we started, because today we will be talking about your process and your company, which is dealing with hydrolysis of sludge in a very special and interesting way. And that's a topic where I was involved a long time ago and without any success. So I'm, I'm jealous and envious, and I want to understand what you do much better than the student I was doing at the time. But jokes aside, I have a tradition on that podcast, which is to open with a postcard, and you're sending a postcard from Oslo. So what can you tell me about Oslo, which I would ignore by now? 
Oslo is a beautiful city with land area that's covered by forests and parks, so 50% of it. And the fjord extends all the way to the city center. And even though it's, it's the capital of, of Norway, I think if, if you were to, to visit sometime Antoine, you would probably call it a, a village. It's landly. It's probably the only city you would visit that's got this uh, own highway for bees. So it's a unique and, and environmental city. I have to say, I was once in Oslo to visit our sales company for GF Piping System in, in Oslo. And what I noticed is that from their office, they have a view on a, a ski track. And I was like, that's where I want to live. And then my wife told me, you better come back. So I didn't stay in Oslo, but that might happen at some point. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I usually don't speak that much about myself. So it's not about me, it's about Kembi today. And you're the CEO of Kembi. And if I'm right, Kembi is your first encounter with the water industry. So how did that happen? And what was your feeling about that industry you discovered? You're right. It is my first encounter with the industry. And I, I think that is, uh, in a way, by chance. When I first talked with the, the founder of Kembi, what I found uh, attractive and interesting was the fact that, well, first of all, it was a company with almost a three-decade history. It was a company that was by far the global market leader. They had successfully gotten their solutions installed in many of the bigger cities of the world, but they were still at the stage where they were only scratching the surface. I saw it as a, uh, a great company, and after having several discussions, I, uh, I got in love with the industry. So uh, some coincidence there, but a, a great fit for me. You, you mentioned how Kembe is a clear leader. We'll go a bit deeper into that in the deep dive about your 77 references, how you're present in, in 24 countries, if I'm right. But right before, I'd like to get the elevator pitch to Kambi. How would you do that? Kambi delivers a, a unique and disruptive technology to the water and, and waste sector, uh, advancing the circular economy by ensuring full hygienization and, and maximum resource recovery, mainly from the treatment of sludge from the wastewater treatment plants, but also other difficult-to-treat organic waste. So, so many cities in, in the world, you mentioned 24 countries. Actually, I'm happy to say that we got our first contract in Morocco, so it's up to, to 25 countries at, at the moment. And, and many cities, they use our solution to make treatment cheaper and more sustainable. So I'm noting some, some keywords. I picked resource recovery, circular economy, and that you're not doing only sludge, which is something I ignored. So mm -hmm. probably those are elements which will come back in, in the deep dive. You mentioned how you're helping utilities to make their process more efficient and, and probably cheaper. I'm just wondering, what is the first thing they come to you with? What is the challenge they want to solve when you start discussing with a utility? It really depends. It's not one, one set of drivers, but in, in some cases, it, um, it may be that they need to increase their capacity, but they don't have the available land to build more digesters, for example. They could opt to go for a THP, which will triple the true throughput on existing digesters. It could be that they're looking at lowering their operating costs because the handling cost of the biosolids is, is high in the region. The fact that we half the, the volume of the biosolids is also a higher quality nutrient-rich and, and free of pathogens and fallout odor. So it really depends on the drivers in the city or in, in the area. You're in a field which has long been, not really from my external eye, a green field. I mentioned how I was involved a bit on my very humble level. At that time, the technology I was looking at was ultrasonic 
hydrolysis of sludge. Then when I was working with Suez, we were looking at ways to do these hydrolysis of sludge with ozone. And I have to say all the encounters I have seen myself were not very successful. So it sounds like there's a real challenge in the industry, but there's not like one be all technology which was ruling all of that unless you found the martingale. So would you say that we are now at a stage where your process is really something which is now major enough to have this bold statement, which you said to be a, a clear leader? Of course, it's been a long journey, you know, introducing a new technology. And, and you know, the industry is very conservative. It, it takes time to develop a market by yourself. Obviously, we have competitors, but our market share is 90% outside of China. So we have a very strong position, but it's taken time. And to gain that trust and to show that we are in it for the long run, that is extremely important. I can give you an example. In the US, we spent 10 years from when we started working there until we landed the first contract in Washington, DC. So once you have that domestic reference plant, the others follow quicker after, right? It's still long processes, as you know, but it, it takes time to penetrate the market with a what I would say is still a young solution in some people's eyes, but as I mentioned, we have three decades of, of history. So, hmm. If I take the example of Washington, D.C., what is the activation trigger which made you go from 10 years in the making to now you have a reference? For Washington, it was a, a long process where they evaluated many different options for their plants. One of the benefits with THP, which they have they've spoken about externally as well, is that they achieved an investment saving of 35% or $200 million directly attributable to the company THP. And on top of that, they're saving $20 million per year in operating costs. So the, the drivers in that project were extreme, right? I would call it a greenfield project. Uh, in the US, you, you may argue it's a brownfield because they had existing treatment other places. But in, in some cases like that, you have an immediate payback or it's a negative effect of it. So, so, so I think that was that was one of the, the main drivers for why they opted to go with Combi THP. Mm. You mentioned resource recovery and circular economy as some of the drivers for Kembi. Mm -hmm. And we've always said it's wastewater treatment plants. And more and more we hear the term water resource factory or resource factory without the water element. And if that shift really happens, then your process becomes a no-brainer because you're just increasing the yield of that transformation. Where are we as an industry on that shift from treatment plants to resource factory? That, that's a, a very good question, Antoine. I think you, you're right that the sewage sludge is, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but it's an amazing bioresource, both the, the biogas that uh, that you can, can generate, but also the biosolids, which is increasingly perceived as a valuable resource uh, for water companies and local communities. We operate globally and we can certainly see a change in perception in, the, for example, in the US and in Korea, but also in what we define as emerging markets like uh, South Africa, Colombia, Brazil. And an example of that is the, the, the national mission for clean Ganga in, in India, uh, where they're looking at not only sanitation, but also a biosolids master plan, how they can make the best use of the, the resources. So what's the driver? What is driving that? I think it's a, it depends, again, on where you are. In some areas where you have an established mechanism to 
either as a public entity recharge the cost of handling the biosolids or to use private companies in that way. You see a drive to have a higher quality biosolids that opens up for more outlets. So you can see the value of having a class A product that you can land apply, substitute the chemical fertilizer and or use it as a, as a soil improver. So it, it really depends. But if you don't have a cost of getting rid of the, the biosolids, uh, then it will end up in your backyard or in the river. And then the, the, the drivers are, are weak. You mentioned THP, thermal hydrolysis. P is for plants, right? I'm just trying to unveil the acronym. Uh, yes, the thermal hydrolysis process. Process. Okay. Mm. Can you swiftly explain in, in simple terms how you're thermohydrolysis process works and where it fits inside a plant? Essentially, it is a giant pressure cooker. So sewage sludge from the wastewater treatment plant is first dewatered, typically to 16%. So it's uh, preheated using uh, recycled steam. And from the preheater, the, the warm sludge passes through a, a pressure vessel where it's mixed with steam until you get a temperature of uh, 160 degrees at a six bars of pressure. And it, it holds there for uh, 20 to 30 minutes. And at the end of the, the cycle, you have a sudden pressure drop that down to atmospheric pressure, which disintegrates the, the cells and reducing the sludge viscosity and making the feedstock very suitable for anaerobic digestion. So you get the increased biogas production up to, to 40% and uh, you get the half the uh, volume of the biosolids compared to the conventional method. By how much do you estimate you can enhance the biogas production? Up to 40%. We have seen cases where we have achieved uh, 43%, but generally really depends on the local circumstances. It is anywhere between 25 and 40% normally. You mentioned before that the, the utilities which come to you have challenges which are they, that they want to increase their capacity, that they want to lower their OPEX or reduce the sludge volume. Is that something they have from the designing of the plants on and then it's a new build solution? Or do you most of the time operate as an enhancement and upgrade of existing facilities? We do both. Most of our projects are uh, brownfield projects, but for sure, greenfield projects have uh, very strong drivers for our solution. We can come in with whether it's a containerized thermal hydrolysis process that we put on a slab and, and connect uh, or if it's part of a, a larger project where they need to increase capacity or other drivers, we come in with modules and, and install it. So it, it's very suitable for brownfield and the greenfield projects. So I, I noted the containerized key, keywords. I'm coming back to that a bit later because I have some questions about that as well. But you mentioned also some advantages. So we've seen the obvious, I would say, advantage that you are enhancing the biogas production all of them are linked together, but it's not the only benefit. I was thinking, you know, we are now some days away from the Global Water Summit in Madrid, which is going to look at how our water industry will tend to net zero and carbon neutrality and, and, and carbon positivity even. And I would see that as something where your process has a strong asset. Is that a driver which you see emerging and, and, and developing? Would you say it is a benefit of your solution? I would say that that is one of my favorite advantages of our solution. And I am very encouraged to see the pace at which water and wastewater utilities are adopting net zero, setting net zero pledges, carbon or climate targets. 
And I, and I believe at the moment there's around 80 utilities that set such uh, targets so that's serving 230 million people and, and the number of utilities are, are growing. We are currently serving 14 of these utilities. They're running more than 30 of, uh, of our plants. But the drivers on carbon footprint was not the reason for many of these uh, decisions. Historically, it's been the financial drivers that's been important. As I mentioned, you get lower capex, lower opex, and that's what's driven the, the development in Combi and, and why we have a very good uh, market share in the UK. We're treating 50% of all the sludge in the UK. It's a, it's a privatized uh, market, as, as you know, but the public sector is slowly coming along. I would say that uh, what we bring to the table is a solution that will lower the carbon footprint. Our solution has the lowest carbon footprint irrespective of the biosolids outlet. So whether you go to land application or incineration, we, we provide the, the best solution. And, and of course, again, it will depend on the current situation that you have, how much, how big the impact is. You're a brick in that wall of that carbon neutral trend, or I mean, even if Today, it's only a fraction of the utilities which are looking at that target. I think it's something which might be growing. And if I'm right, I've seen a news where you were involved in such a project in China. Is that the case? In China, I, I assume you're referring to the five large sludge centers that, that we have in Beijing. But we are also having a, a plant in, in Chongqing and also in, in Hong Kong. But in Beijing, we, we treat the sludge from more than 20 million people, which is just massive. If you if you compare to what they did prior to these plants being built and the today's situation with uh, the Cubby THP, they've reduced the carbon emissions by 2.2 million tons per year. But of course, they had alternatives to our solution, incineration. They would still have a, a big saving. But if you look at what is directly attributable to the Cubby THP, basically the difference between incineration and and the THP, we have a saving of 400,000 tons. And that is enormous. And we have other examples of, uh, of projects that's got similar drivers. Uh, so in a way, the fact that we bring this to the table, the, the benefits are lowering your carbon footprint, but you can do that and at the same time, lower your costs. And that should be a very easy decision to make for any utility, right? And you also have all the other benefits I talked about, right? No odor of the biosolids, half the trucks leaving the plant. The community would, would love you for it, right, as a, as a city leader. But there is some conservatism and the decision-making take time. It take three, four, five years before you, you start a project or even a decade. So it's, it's moving slowly and the sense of urgency is perhaps one of the things that surprised me the most entering this industry, Antoine. It's, it's very different to the private industries and, and how quickly you jump on things that makes perfect sense. I guess it's, it's the two sides of the same coin, but usually we, we refer to it as the water industry is conservative for a reason. And then you can agree with it and you can fight it and you can be mad at it, but it is what it is. So <laughs> it's a difficult field to, to that extent, but also it's a, the other side of it is that it's a very resilient field so yeah two sides of the same coin but i, I won't sidetrack you here you you mentioned that you're reducing the cost so whoever is using your process has to invest so it's a capex and mm -hmm. then you're reducing the opex but what is your average return on investments there's not 
one answer to, to that question. You know, the example I gave in Washington DC is, is, is an, in an extreme case, right? So you, you actually have a saving from day one. And, but if I'm to generalize, again, depends on the drivers, I would say five years uh, plus minus in order to, to have a, a payback on, on the investment. So it really depends on the situation. If you need to increase the capacity, you need to do something. Obviously, then the CapEx element will be offset or at least reduced quite significantly. If you are doing it only to increase your biogas production and to lower your handling costs of the biosolids, then obviously you're looking at a lot longer uh, payback. And then you're looking at five years, typically. Today, if I try to unpack your business model, you have one part of the business model, which is those CapEx sales. And you have another part of the business model, which is to do design, build, operate. Plus, Mm. you have a layer of services. If I'm right, today, the biggest chunk is your capex sales is that your history or is that really the way you want to address that market today that you're absolutely right historically the the capex sales new new plants that's been the 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 lion's share of our business and that that's gradually changed i would say primarily over the last five six years where we've had a a higher focus and attention on the the aftermarket, spare part sales and support during annual shutdowns or upgrade of our installed base with the latest development that that we've made. And one of the the things that we've also worked on, you're referring to the DBO segment, design, build, own and operate. That's something we worked on for a couple of years. It's an important strategic direction for Combi where we're looking to accelerate projects, whether it's a municipality or a group of municipalities that see a need, but want to avoid the the investment cost burden of of realizing a project. Maybe they want to expedite it. We can come in and get paid a a gate fee and we're going to own and operate that plant. In a way, we are targeting to get a higher share of our business being recurring revenue, both from the DBO segment and also the aftermarket. and my ambition is that uh, these recurring revenues will cover all our costs. And you know, if you give it five, six, uh, six, seven years, that is my ambition because this is a project business in, in many ways. You know, the, when the project's going to come in, no one knows. We know that it's going to come, but you'll have fluctuations in capex sales. So that is important to us. So you mentioned DBO, but if I understand you right, it's DBOO. It's a decent build, own, and operate. Yes, and you could call it PPP projects, public-private partnerships. There's many acronyms to it, but basically owning and operating the plants, yes. I mean, you have the trendy way to look at it as well, which would be to say you're doing sludge management or biogas production enhancement as a service. Everything can be as a service nowadays, right? And, And it's all of a sudden much more trendy, even if it's the same than the DBOO. Yes, you're right. You could you could argue that we could take a, a plant, uh, as the containerized one, we could uh, come in at a brownfield project and say, if you give us the, the permits necessary, uh, concrete slab, we'll come in with the THP, we'll treat it, you'll pay a gate fee uh, as a service, and you know, once the contract's up, we'll, we'll take it back and we'll move it to the next plant. So in, in a way, you could say it's... Uh, That's a business model we've covered on that microphone with with Cambrian Innovation, with Inopsis, with Axin Water, and and all what they had in common when they were on that microphone is that they explained something quite similar to what you said, that there is a barrier to adoption in that water industry, and that somehow when you come with that business model, 
it's not like the martingale, which beats all of them, but it reduces that barrier to adoption because it reduces the friction. So it just rings the bell when you say you, you have containerized plants. I'm just thinking, yeah, as you said, so you ask the customer for a concrete slab, and then if you're uh, upgrading the, the biogas production by 40%, maybe you can get half of that upgrade and, and that's your fee. So it's kind of a no risk for the, the end user and probably a nice benefit for you. But yeah, I'm just uh, beating yeah, open doors. <laughs> absolutely. You know, buy and biogas is, is obviously one one part of it. But I think what is the strongest driver in the current climate is the uh, the fact that you uh, reduce the the volume of the biosolids by 50%. And it's a higher quality, you know, giving more outlets for it. So so that is a, a big benefit that, that in a situation like that, you would share between the, the plant and, um, and, and Combi. Regarding those outlets, the fact that your process is killing the pathogens, does that mean that you can have new applications of that treated sludge? Yes, uh, absolutely. And if you use uh, thermal hydrolysis, you get a class A product, as you said, free of pathogens. And the number of outlets where you can land apply it goes up. It may be areas that's closer to the plant as well. And when you see in some markets in the US, for example, that more and more landfills are being closed or they're, they're reaching their capacity and they're having challenges with our solution that that can help uh, the, the situation. We mentioned wastewater treatment plants turning into water resource factory. One element of that is that you might be tempted to go into resource recovery. Is that a field you're investigating? Out with the fact that uh, you know, we, we bring uh, phosphorus and nitrogen back through the biosolids uh, by land applying it. Uh, if you're referring to phosphorus recovery, obviously that's, that's something that we're, we're keeping an eye on as well, but we, we don't have any plans to to start that journey in Cumbiet at the moment. I think one of the reasons why we've been so successful is that we've been very focused on where our core competency lies. And then of course, we're interested in other technologies, other businesses. Uh, we're on the outlook for uh, candidates for you know, M&A, but uh, starting uh, ourselves to develop into a new direction is, is not on the agenda at the moment. So if expanding on the horizontal is not on your agenda, I have a question that might hurt the former CFO in you, because um, if I'm right, you were the CFO of Kembi before becoming the CEO. Mm. Uh, so far, Kembi had a steady, sustainable growth. And if now I'm thinking, you know, just out of the box, you're beating the barrier to adoption because you go much more into DBOO and, and you're much more aggressive with that growth. I mean, you're building containers and then you start beating the doors of utilities. Would that be a path which is appealing to you or do you want to stay on your steady and sustainable growth? Which is, I mean, it's not a judgment, my question. It's really to, to understand where, where you're, you're heading. We are looking at the foster growth or there's a reason why we decided to go public about a year ago. We raised capital in order to invest more heavily in the, the DBO segment. One thing is to land that first contract, which will be and a very important milestone uh, for us, but but it's also investing more in sales and marketing. Basically, what we're doing in, in, in sales process is educating the various stakeholders. I think one of the, the largest bottlenecks we have is marketing or knowledge about our solution. So, so increasing that awareness is is important to to ensure growth when it comes to 
you know, investing in, in growth and developing, even in years that uh, has been slow because of uh, project execution has been on hold or new contracts have been delayed, we've always continued to invest in R&D. So we, we continue investing in that and we will continue. That is in our DNA, being an innovative company. And we, we did launch a new product last year and we are close to launching a, a yet another product this year, which will further reduce the energy need by, by 30% compared to, to the current model. So we, we continue to develop both to keep an eye on competition, obviously, but also to be, be aware and meet the, the customer needs, the current and, and what we expect in the future. So. How does that translate into the company's structure? If my research is right, you're 130 people inside Kembi? About 130, yes. What are the big equilibriums? I mean, how many people are working in R&D? How many people are working in sales? We, in R&D, I would say we are five people that, uh, that focuses on R&D. Uh, there's a lot of people that contributes, that you've seen, that's got the ideas, that is part of the development, of course, there's many disciplines involved in, especially in product development. And then you have the research element, which is, it's a bit different. And in, in sales, we, we have about 15 internal resources, but we also have representatives and agents and consultants that, that work for us in some areas. And what is your go-to market route? Do you go directly to the end users or do you integrate into EPCs? I mean, the Suez, Veolia of this world. Yeah, our main contacts in the sales journey would be, of course, the end customer uh, in some cases, and in, but in, in other cases, it will be consultants early phase uh, during feasibility studies, uh, for example. And then once you approach the tender phase, obviously, the main contractors are the ones that we're dealing directly with. You, you mentioned your IPO last year. What does it change for a company like Kembi to go public? I think the, the, the biggest change that we've seen is that we are more known in the market. And I'm not talking the, you know, the Norwegian uh, general public or financial community, but I'm actually referring to, to the industry. The approach we, we have from, from potential customers, the inbound uh, requests, uh, it's difficult to, to say for sure and pinpoint that to being due to the IPO or if it's due to the efforts that we've done in marketing over several years, of course. But my hypothesis is that um, this has contributed positively. Internally, it's a bit of the, the opposite. We came from being a, a family-owned business and you know, an openness where everyone knew everything that was going on. As a public company, you need to, to manage that information flow a, a bit stricter. So uh, in a way, it's changed Combi somewhat. You've mentioned how your ambition is to develop your DBO part of the business in order to secure your cash flow and not be that much relying on the markets having ups and downs like every capex market but especially in the water industry hmm. beyond that what's your definition of success for Kembi for the next five or ten years beyond the recurring revenue side i would say that uh, entering some of the markets that we worked on for for years i mentioned india uh, south africa brazil colombia those would be important elements but i'm also inclined to uh, to say that it would also be to enter the private market and looking at treatment of other substrates uh, whether it's sand laden manure or crops or, or other substrates where you know the drivers for increased biogas is so obviously stronger now and it's very exciting to to work on but if we can penetrate that i think that would be a sign of a very big success for for Kambi. 
you, you mentioned at the very opening of the discussion that you are sludge and not only. Is that your ambition or are you already doing something beyond sludge today? We do have plants that do only food waste uh, or a combination of sludge and food waste uh, already. What I was referring to now is, is other substrates other than that. But of course, our main market now is, is food sludge, but also some food waste. Thanks a lot. I think that was a thorough deep dive. And I think I, I understand a bit better the realm of Kembe. And it sounds, I mean, I was excited before. I'm still excited after. So... Mm. <laughs> So thanks a lot for the openness and for, for everything you shared. If that's fine with you, I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. Sounds good, Antoine. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I try to keep the questions short and you have to keep the, the answers short, but I'm never cutting the microphone. First question, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? I would actually refer back to what I just mentioned around approaching the industrial market and different feedstocks, the work we've done in, in the lab and also the, the dialogue we have with several private companies. That's really exciting at the moment. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? I, I would say it's a bit, perhaps a bit personal, uh, Antoine, answer to this, but You know, 11 years ago, I, I, I was on vacation in India and I decided to go hiking in Leh. And I came there, I, I met an elderly couple, a British couple in their late 60s, early 70s. And they had been to the summit and the, you know, they managed. And I was thinking, well, I have better gear. I have, I'm younger than them. So if they could, um, for sure, I will be able to, right? It was really a motivation for me to hear that. I started walking. I, of course, I got altitude sickness. I was confused. I saw the river flowing up the mountain and decided, okay, I need to turn around. And, and what, I, what I learned was well, I've set a goal, but uh, it, I, I need to not be too fixated on, on the path, right? Uh, it, it is different paths. You need to listen to the ones around you. So when you said, what's your goal for the next five years? I have a goal. I have a path in mind, but that, that may change the path to get there. So I would say that's a lesson learned. That's an interesting lesson, Lum. It's also a very interesting metaphor. So thanks for sharing that one. Is there something you're doing in your job today that you will not be doing in 10 years? Definitely around digitalization. I would say we're, we're quite good in general, the way I work. Uh, and uh, instead of a notebook, I, I use a remarkable digital uh, the pencil. But for the industry or the company, I would say the remote monitoring that we're working on as one small step in improving and digitalizing the industry, I think that we will see in the next 10 years changing uh, dramatically. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? More and more cities set climate neutrality targets and uh, they're raising up to the challenge. The shift is evident and warrants an adoption of new and advanced technologies. So. It's exciting times, and, and what uh, we'll, we'll see is a green transformation industry, in, uh, is what I believe. If you were a world political leader, what would be your very first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? Oh, that's a big one, Antoine. Of course, you have the sanitation problem. Right? If you think of the globally, about a quarter or around 30% having access to safe treatment of wastewater, which is, which is extremely important to, to tackle. So... So what I would say is that I would look at a, a way to adapt the, the challenges and have, have the, the different parts of the industry work 
together to to make sure we we get safe wastewater safe treatment of wastewater to to a larger part of the population with private money or public money or, or a combination would you have someone to recommend me that i should definitely invite on that same microphone I, I think it would be very interesting for you to uh, to talk to Vinod Thar, which is the founding head of the national mission for clean Ganga in India. The, the work that they're doing, both on sanitation and developing plants and, and uh, using uh, think tanks uh, to, to come up with a plan, including the resource recovery and biosolids master plan. I think it would be a really interesting uh, person to talk to. Thanks a lot for the recommendation. And as I said, thanks a lot for everything you shared in that interview and conversation. And if people want to follow up with you after everything we, we discussed today, where shall I redirect them the best? Obviously, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and, and you can find the company there as well. Or, or uh, if you want to read up more on, on company, go into onto combi.com. So like always, all the links will be in the episode notes. Eric, thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to check on your path in a couple of years. So thank you very you. much, uh, Antoine. It was a pleasure. listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.